Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal Podcasts. This week's podcast includes talks from Beaver Congress 2019, including the Surgery News Hour with Bruce Bladen, preceded by Medicine News Update from Natasha Jocelyn. So I just want to thank Beaver for asking me to speak today. Um, this hopefully is a run-through of, of, kind of some relevant stuff from the last few months. I don't have anything to declare, um, but I'm obviously talking about other people's research, so um, hopefully I don't do them any disservice. I was looking at published research since January 2019. Um, I have included ones that are in the early view sections, and I thought it would be quite prudent to include things that really were relevant to general practitioners, um, hopefully as well as specialists, and maybe stuff that could be applied to clinical cases. Um, so the journals I included were EVJ, EVE, JVIM, JAVMA, and the VET record. So medicine uh, nose to hoof. Um, I was kind of hoping to cover um, a broad range of, of organ systems to try and give a bit of variety in this talk um, rather than focus on one particular area. So the first um, one I'm going to cover is, is eyes. Um, so I looked at this paper, um, equine retrobulbar disease, um, came out of UC Davis. Uh, it was a retrospective study that they looked over 29 years, so going back through their clinical records. And they looked at um, exophthalmus, um, and the horses had to have a histopathology diagnosis as well, and they found 15 horses um, from their database. They found they had a significantly higher number of geldings, so 12 versus 3 mares, and they had a variety of diagnostic modelling um, here, so x-rays, ultrasound and CT, and not all of the cases had all of those things. They found that they had uh, eight primary cases um, of retrobulbar disease and then they had um, seven that were secondary to cyanoanalytic disease and of those kind of 15, about 53% um, had neoplasia. Interestingly, they looked at kind of how uh, survival for these animals um, and unfortunately only about 33% um, were alive at 21 months. So I'm going to kind of do key points from each of the papers. So I thought from this paper um, that it's important to think about diagnostic evaluation of the entire skull. And it was about 15, 50% of these cases were secondary. Uh, the most common tumour they found was neuroendocrine. And they found also that bone invasion was a negative prognostic indicator, um, with surgery for those cases unlikely to improve the survival time. Um, and they also discussed um, two cases of aspergillosis um, that were in the secondary um, secondary cyanonasal disease that then extended and um, which hadn't been reported before. Interestingly, they had uh, five horses that had CT and three of those were actually euthanized once they'd had the CT examination performed, so at diagnosis. And I imagine that's probably because CT is really giving us the, a lot more detailed information about how extensive or um, dramatic this disease was um, compared to the other imaging modalities. The next topic I was going to move on to was neurology. Um, so we looked at this paper, so effects of magnesium uh, with or without boron on head shaking um, in trigeminally mediated head shakers. So this again was out of Davis, um, published in JVIM. So it was a randomised controlled crossover study and they had 12 quarter or thoroughbred geldings, six who were trigeminally mediated head shakers and six who were controls. And they diagnosed really the trigeminally mediated head shakers by exclusion of other potential diagnoses. They began to say that these horses were euthanized um, for other reasons at the end of a study period um, and no other diagnosis could be identified. So they had three groups, um, one that was given, so three treatment options and the first one was a pelleted feed, um, the second one was pelleted feed with a magnesium supplement and the third was a pelleted feed with magnesium and boron and these were all compared to baselines at hay. So they had a week of treatment and then one week of washout and they looked at the head shaking behaviour so they had three um, experienced um, 
people watched the horses and they were also videotaped and the people were blinded to the treatment that they were undergoing and they looked at head shaking behaviour at walk, trot and canter over quite a short period performing blood gas and electrolyte measurements as well. They found that there was a significant increase in ionised magnesium and total magnesium in all the treatments um, and they interestingly found that pelleted feed um, actually led to a reduction in head shaking of about 44% compared to hay the magnesium with the pelleted feed, 52%, and the magnesium and boron, about 64%. Um, they found that the magnesium and boron combination had a 36% reduction compared to the pelleted feed. So key points from this paper were probably that um, so this uh, dosage of magnesium and ele elemental boron um, decreased head shaking for, by about 64% um, per minute. They did look at a small group of, of head shakers and ones that were very much seasonally head shakers rather than showing it throughout the season. Um, and they found this interesting thing that actually just by giving these horses this pelleted feed, which was a Perina feed, uh, along with some oil and apple sauce to make it more palatable, the uh, magnesium, that they actually did get an improvement there. So that's maybe further research about um, what maybe the pelleted feeds and how they might be involved as well. <coughs> I'm not going to go into anything from cardiology. There's been a really good uh, veterinary clinics of North America published this year on clinical cardiology, so um, 200 pages of fun to go and have a read if you want to have a look more, a bit more into the cardiology most recently. Focusing now onto the respiratory tract, um, and it's pretty much all about steroids, really, uh, from lots of the papers that I found this year. Um, I thought this paper was potentially um, interesting from the point of view. I think there's a few people probably out there using their flexinebs to, to give dexamethasone, and this paper kind of followed on from some research looking at its absorption. So this was nebulization of dexamethasone uh, for the treatment of severe asthmatic horses. Um, it was published in EVJ. They had 12 uh, severe asthma horses, um, and they induced their asthma either with stabling with hay or with mouldy hay, depending on the horse. Um, and then they grouped the horses based on lung resistance testing. Uh, one group had uh, 5 milligrams of dexamethasone nebulised um, by an ultrasonic nebulizer once a day for seven days, and the second group um, had the same dose given orally. They then looked at lung function, clinical score, pulmonary function tests, and serum cortisol levels. They found in their study that um, significant improvement in clinical score was seen on day five to eight in the oral group only, um, and that pulmonary resistance significantly reduced at day eight in the oral group only as well. They noted that horses that were having the nebulization, five out of six of them, were noted to cough during the nebulization. And interestingly, they found that cortisol suppression was seen in both treatment methods, so both the systemic um, dexamethasone and also the nebulized dexamethasone. So this study used quite a low dose of dexamethasone, um, but it did not appear to attain the desired bronchodilation that we would like with our severe asthmatic horses. It does show that um, nebulised dexamethasone led to systemic absorption, and the thought maybe is that um, in disease epithelium, so clinical states, that the um, absorption may be altered, because previous studies had shown that actually nebulised um, dexamethasone may have a, a less of a systemic effect. They also were concerned whether the horses were maybe um, ingesting the, the inhaled um, dexamethasone as well. This was obviously quite a short period of only seven days, so I think there's definitely more work to be done um, on this modality. The next one I want to look at again, looking at steroids, but now we're looking at an inhaled um, steroid. Um, so this is a quite a significant study. So there was uh, effect of different doses of inhaled cyclicide on lung function, clinical signs related to airway, airflow, airway flow limitation and serum cortisol levels in horses with um, mild to severe equine um, airway obstruction. 
This was a crossover placebo-controlled blinded randomised experiment, and it was run over three years. And it, the paper describes three experiments. So the first is a dose titration study, and the second was a drug delivery adaptation, and they are using um, an inhaler for this study. And then they had an adaptation of the nozzle um, where they to give the drug. And then the third study, they looked at different doses and frequencies. Um, they compared them to a placebo, so an inhaler without any of the drugs, but with all of the, um, the other adjuvants in there. And then they had a positive control, which was um, dexamethasone systemically. They did perform a power calculation and decided they needed eight horses, and that's what they had in each of their study. And for each of the horses and each of the studies, they did clinical evaluation, lung function tests, uh, bronchoconstriction reversibility testing, and um, various amounts of bloods. So what do they find? So it, there's a lot of um, reported in this, in this study, so I can only really go through very briefly what, what was found. But really, in the initial dose study, um, they found that only the highest dose had an effect on respiratory function. So they went then and took that on, to sec on there to their second study. In the second study, they found no significant difference between the treatments that they were using and the different nozzles that they were using. But they did feel that um, they used a weighted clinical score, which they describe in the paper, um, and respiratory function was significantly different for this um, dose, so 2,700 micrograms per, um, twi twice a day at days 7 and 14 compared to day 0. They did find that evening administration of inhalers was better if you were just going to do it once a day. Um, but they also found that only three out of seven actually had normalised respiratory resistance, um, even with the, the dose that they would consider to be the, the best um, option from their study. So cyclonicide could be used in equine asthma. Um, they interestingly found that really very little, um, there was little effect on serum cortisol, so actually no real systemic effects from giving this inhaler. Um, the study describes this weighted clinical score, um, which could be used, and they found that they had about 83% sensitivity and 70% specificity for severe asthma um, with this um, weighted clinical score. And they suggest a dose of 2,700 micrograms um, BID. I did have a quick look to see if we could get this inhaler in the UK, and we can, and a quick search on, online. Um, it would basically cost about £23 for an inhaler that would last a horse at this dose for around four days, so um, potentially a feasible thing to be looking at for our horses within uh, asthma. Moving on to GIT, um, so this study I thought was relatively interesting maybe for general practitioners and thinking about trying to save some monies if we're trying to use fluids, and this was one that compared uh, continuous uh, fluid infusion per rectum compared to IV and nasogastric fluid administration um, published in, e in EVJ. So this, they did a pilot study where they looked at different um, dose rates and different um, fluids, so either plain fluid or polyionic solutions, and they found that horses um, would tolerate only kind of plain water per rectum and only at a maximum of five mils per kg per hour. They then went on and used um, six geldings, and again, they did a power calculation to decide the numbers um, using a four-way crossover with a two-week washout in between the four um, different uh, methods that they, they obviously describe here. And they looked at um, central venous pressure, clinical parameters, and different bloods as well. They found that uh, rectal fluids um, significantly decreased heart rate and decreased rectal temperature at six hours compared to zero, and they also um, found an increase in the Borgarhythmy score to a maximum, this maximum score was 12 on their study, um, and really they found that there was a very similar effect on PCV and TP compared to IV and, um, and nasogastric tubing as well, and as expected, obviously, IV fluids had a significantly quicker um, changes. 
So they describe how to use the, uh, an enema tube and how to, how to place it in the rectum um, that could be now be used for kind of maximum of five mils per kg per hour. So really only kind of two times maintenance, so not really suitable for lots and lots of fluids. It does lead to comparable hemodilution. Obviously, quite a short period of uh, fluid administration in this study, only six hours, and obviously we're going to probably be using it for longer, but it could provide a quite a cost-effective method, and we obviously need further clinical evaluation um, and how this might affect horses on a longer longer period and also whether it might change their electrolytes using lots of plain, plain fluid. Moving on now, um, so this is a study um, looking at pain scores, so application of the equine composite pain score and its association with um, plasma ACTH, um, concentrations in serum cortisol, um, published in EVE. So they did uh, two studies, and the first study was an inter-observer reliability of the composite pain scores. Um, so this was 102 horses um, that they pain scored using um, Glerup van Lindegaard's um, 2016 published um, pain score. Um, they adapted it slightly, um, and they had the horses observed by two observers at the same time who were uh, veterinary nurses. So this is the pain score that they used. Um, so they're using pain, pain, uh, facial pain, um, location instable, a response to food, and they also added uh, breathing rate and heart rate, and they increased the um, observation period from two minutes to ten minutes, um, and they felt that gave them a better, better response. Um, and then um, study two was looking at clinical pain, uh, the pain composite pain scores in colic patients and taking ACTH and cortisol. Um, and they had 29 medical and 20 surgical colics. And they took their blood within about 30 minutes to two and a half hours of pain scoring and measured both those parameters. <laughs> they found that the inter-observer reliability was excellent um, for study one and the lowest um, pain face had the lowest inter-observer reliability. And study two, they found that the, they looked at the highest clin uh, pain score that they had over the study period for, the, for each horse and compared that to the cortisol and ACTH examined. And they found uh, in their linear model a significant positive association between the highest CPS and cortisol, but not with ACTH. They then looked at all of their data points um, and they found that they had a strong association again between the pain scores and the cortisol levels, but not ACTH. However, at that, if you looked at all of the data, the cortisol and ACTH were significantly associated. So I think, obviously, um, pain score scales are definitely being used more commonly, especially in equine hospitals, and there's quite a lot of scores that are described in the literature. Um, interestingly, their first study, um, it was veterinary nurses performing the CPS, and obviously these are obviously very diligent and have <laughs> extremely good reliability, but it's probably okay for multiple staff who are well-trained to be using these scores, and we should have their similar results to whoever's going to do it. I wondered if it might be the same um, for veterinary students and, or whether a vet's also maybe a bit more in a rush, but um, that'd be some more information. And the association of cortisol and the scores um, maybe indicate that we are accurately assessing stress in our colic population at least. Um, moving on to gastric ulcers and glandular disease. Um, so this was published this year. So mesoprostol is superior to combined omeprazole and sacrophate um, for the uh, treatment of equine glandular disease published in EBJ. So this was a study that was formed, uh, obviously the horses all had gastroscopy and the images were scored by three blinded investigators and they scored the squamous and glandular ulceration on a four point scale. And then the horses either received omeprazole and sacrophate orally um, or mesoprostol. And the treatment was actually assigned by the location uh, rather than any particular randomization. Um, the repeat scope was done between 28 and 35 days, and they classed healing as a, an improvement to a grade zero and an improvement to be at least one grade improvement. 
they had quite significantly more horses in their uh, mesoprostal group, so 43, and 20 in their Mepresol and Sacralfate. And this was a population, really, of um, performance horses, so eventers, show jumpers, and dressage horses. And their cl most cl common clinical sign was poor performance, so 65%. They, were, they did go on in the study to describe the lesions as we would now um, describe for glandular disease, um, and they found they had no significant difference between the lesions in the two treatment groups. Um, and then their outcomes really, so they had 72% of the mesoprostal group that were healed uh, and 20% of the emrepazole um, and sacralfate group, so a significant difference between those two. And 98% of the mesoprostal group improved and 65% of the emrepazole um, and sacralfate, again, a significant difference. So um, in, this, in this study, mesoprostol had a significantly greater um, improvement um, than the, um, the meprazole and sacralfate in the sports horse population. I think some are still probably struggling to treat glandular disease, so this maybe gives us a further option for what can be quite challenging. However, it's still important to note that a quarter of their horses failed to respond to either of the treatments. And I think we need to remember that there's obviously human factors when we're using mesoprostol, making sure that we're um, taking that to account and uh, having appropriate guidelines and um, informing our clients when they're using this drug. I'm not going to go through the consensus statement, but there is a consensus statement from this year <laughs> on EMS, quite a big document. Um, so go, through, go and read that. That will give you a load of information about what's been published on that front. But I was just going to touch on this study um, that was published in JVIM that looked at the effect of um, TRH um, stim testing on the oral sugar test when performed combined as a protocol. There's been a previous study um, where the OST and then the TRH was performed and there was a significant effect on them. Um, so they've done it the other way around. So this was a randomised placebo-controlled crossover study. 26 horses with no previous endocrinopathy testing. Um, they had an oral sugar test um, using the low dose, so 0.15 mils per kg, um, a TRH stim, um, then followed by an OST, and then a saline injection followed by a, an oral sugar test, and they measured the ACTH, glucose, and insulin. So this is from the, the publication, and the, if you scan across, you can see that really there seems to be not much difference from their baseline ACTH, and neither with their insulins at the um, baseline or at the um, times past their OSTs, and the same again when they're looking at their glucose. So the TRH followed by the OST did not significantly affect insulin and glucose or outcome um, versus the OST alone or a placebo injection. However, the astute of you will probably notice that their ACTHs are all quite low and they didn't really have horses that were having, um, that would be considered really PPID. So I think um, how a high ACTHs might affect the OST maybe is something that they're, they're going to look at next, I imagine. Popping on to skin, um, so this is from Anna Hollis, um, published in EVE, so it obviously discusses the strontium <laughs> physiotherapy in sarcoids um, and looks at the, the, what they've been doing um, really at the Animal Health Trust. So horses with sarcoids treated with strontium, um, they were allowed to be debulked, but they weren't allowed to have any other treatment at the same time. However, they were also treating um, sarcoids that had been previously treated and reoccurred. They found that the maximum lesion diameter they could do was 24 millimetres, and after debulking, there could be no um, depth, could be had to be less than 3 millimetres, um, and under sedation, or GA, and most of these, I think 9 out of 10, were under sedation. Um, the strontium was applied for a predefined treatment time, um, and in some horses, they used a fractionated protocol where they had um, a certain amount of the exposure every other day for kind of three treatments, and they followed it up with resolution um, from the owners or ref vets via photographs. 
They had 10 sarcoids from eight horses and 100% resolution um, and no recurrence in their follow-up period, which was um, six to 30 months. So they found they had quite quick resolution, so between four and 12 weeks. And there was, however, an area of permanent hair loss, um, but good cosmetic outcome. Um, four out of the 10 lesions were debulked. Um, important that you do careful place selection and this obviously isn't the cheapest of, of modalities um, but it is um, a kind of an option for some horses and it does obviously reduce by having very localized radiotherapy the side effects um, however it's not suitable for larger lesions and I'm going to stop there because I'm probably out of time rather than go through anything else. Thank you very much. <laughs> um. Thank you. Yes, I'm not, not quite sure how this fits in a respiratory session, but um, they asked, would I, would I present the news hour sort of review of um, uh, surgery publications of this year? So, so, so I said, yes, I, I would. And um, so I'd like to start, first of all, um, of, of presenting a little award for the big job of, of the year, um, a sort of celebration of, of, of the, 50 years ago, the ult ultimate big job. And, and, I, and I picked out two for this, and, 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 and the runner-up, was this paper, Pantarsal Arthrodesis in a Pony Using a Locking Compression Plate by Ted Vlahos of the Yellowstone Equine Hospital. That was almost what, what um, excited me more than anything, the idea that there was an equine hospital near the Yellowstone Park and, and uh, a much more spectacular place to work. I don't know if he's got any, any, any vacancies for somebody wanting to leave Newbury and uh, the south of England. So this was, um, this was the case, and, and you know, I, I hope... Um, um, even some stud vets should be able to realise that this is, this is actually really quite a significant problem. Um, and and, and they, they, they went ahead and plated it. And there it is, two weeks post-surgery. Uh, it spent a month in a full limb cast, changed once, so two, two separate casts. And there it is, six months after surgery. Um, healed, healed extremely well. Very, very impressive um, piece, piece of work. And um, the excitement that we do get to have a little glimpse inside the, the Yellowstone Equine Hospital, which looks um, relatively similar to ours um, on the inside, if not on, on the outside. But my winner of the big job of the year um, went to this one, successful surgical debridement of a cerebral streptococcus equi equi abscess by parietal bone flap craniotomy in a two-month-old warm blood foal. There are not many papers out there when you look at the key words that have horse and brain surgery side by side. Um, so I really was quite impressed by this. It was a foal that had had a history of strangles, abscesses, um, but that evening it was found uncoordinated, blind, unresponsive, and it began to have seizures. Um, so went into the hospital. The next day it had a CT, um, which obviously shows this mass up in the, in the, in the brain here. And, and, and you can see it here as well. Um, so, so they found that mass, so they went ahead, did CSF sampling, and then lo and behold, they operated on it. They drilled the parietal bone with a 2.5 millimeter drill bit, and then the holes were connected to each other using an electric oscillating bone saw. I'm somebody who's really a little bit too impatient to actually get into a horse's sinus without giving it a significant nosebleed. So it's probably just as well that it wasn't me um, do, doing this um, cutting into its brain. And they then um, uh, elevated the bone flap with a chisel, cut through the exposed meninges. And then they said the abscess with cavity was approached by blunt dissection of the cerebral cortex where the abscess was most superficial and the liquid pus content was aspirated. Couldn't be easier, couldn't be easier. Recovery from anesthesia was reputedly difficult, unquote. Um, 
but three weeks later, the foal was normal, other than unilateral blindness. And, and then they re-examined it at three months and at nine months, and it was normal, it had normal vision, and was showing normal growth. It was, it was, it was, it was growing perfectly well. So really, I, was, I, I had, you know, I'm not gonna act like I wasn't impressed. I was, um, good, good piece of work um, was, was done there. This uh, is in the Irish Veterinary Journal, retrospective report of the complications associated with the use of the one-man head and tail root recovery system in horses following up from general anesthesia. Um, I hope I get the name right, it's Maria Cinimura del Barrio, um, and uh, it's, it's mostly the results from Bosdrief, um, the Deering Clinic de Bosdrief, simple retrospective study of, of their cases. This was, they were the pioneers of the rope-assisted recovery system, which I think most of us um, use nowadays in, 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 in one, one form or another. These were the results, 5,852 anesthetics over nine and a half years. That's 616 a year to save you doing the maths. 0.2% um, fatalities in anesthetic recovery. Um, but, you know, so I hope um, one of these papers sort of, sort of coming out showing that, you know, 0.9% fatality in, in your anesthesia results is not acceptable in this day and age. We need to be um, getting better results than that, and it is... Um, it is achievable. Only three of those were fractures and dislocations, so hopefully um, evidence that the, the, the rope-assisted recovery was preventing that. You see a significant amount of sudden deaths um, up here, just um, sudden deaths, cardiopulmonary collapse, most of which were colic surgeries, three, three, three exploratory laparotomies. Um, you know, so so um, you know, good, good results. 0.3% non-fatal complications, of which uh, I did notice that they only pulled the, case, pulled the tail hair out of the tail on two occasions, which we've definitely done more often than that. In fact, I can tell you that, that it was a young uh, intern, uh, Richard Reardon, who took this photograph and, um, of, of a horse that had, had done this, and he texted it to me, and he said that the horse was up fine, which was more than he could say for its tail, which was hanging there like a scalped Chinaman in a samurai movie. And <laughs> which actually is a very accurate description, isn't it? So thank you very much for that photo, Richard. And uh, yeah, they've only done that twice. We've certainly done it uh, a little bit more often than that. We've probably done half a dozen um, tail ones. So I think that is, that is a complication of the technique, but better a broken tail than a broken leg. Moving on to colic surgery. The bursting strength of surgeons and self-locking knots for closure of ventral midline ciliotomy in horses. Uh, Liam McGlinchey et al. and published in, in, in Veterinary Surgery. Nice piece of work, I thought. A 20 centimeter laparotomy was created in 14 cadavers. They repaired them with different knot patterns, but then both using six metric PDS, um, either with surgeon's knots or forwarder to start an Aberdeen knots to finish the suture line using a, using a set um, so, so the suturing was consistent. They had the same depth and, and, and width of the sutures. And then they packed the abdomen, or obviously before they closed it, they packed the abdomen with an inflatable bladder so they could distend it to a, to a known pressure. And the bursting strength was significantly higher with forwarder and Aberdeen knots. I like papers that uh, they have a clear conclusion, and this one had an absolutely clear conclusion. Most of them with the forwarder and Aberdeen knots failed through the fascia rather than through the suture, whereas the surgeon's knots usually failed at the knot. Time for the closure techniques was similar. 
Now, this work's been around for a while. Alex Gillen, who's now, uh, I think, at Liverpool, has, has, has done most of it um, and, and various sort of, sort of things examining the size of sutures and, and such like. But I think it's quite clear that most of us now are doing it wrong. We should be closing colics with forwarder and Aberdeen knot combinations. It seems clear that the evidence is that that is a better way um, to do it. And, and here is the map of how to do it, which I've printed out and put on our theatre wall. Staying in colics, so this, this caught my eye, intrasplenic administration of phenylephrine in a horse to induce splenic contraction in a case of nephrosplenic entrapment of the large colon, non-responsive to intravenous phenylephrine administration. Looms and Anderson um, from Rainbow, Rainbow Equine Clinic in Equine Veterinary Education. It's a fairly simple case, a horse with a nephrosplenic entrapment that was managed conservatively with infusions of phenylephrine, uh, managed conservatively for four hours, remained persistently painful, went to surgery. Surgery confirmed firmly entrapped colon in the nephrosplenic space. And, and ultimately, they found they couldn't free it just to, due to the size of the spleen, which isn't a common um, complication, but you know, I guess, guess it could happen. And so they gave the horse further systemic phenylephrine infusion, which did substantially change, the, um, change its, its, its blood pressure, but it didn't change the size of the spleen. And, and so they were struggling. So what they actually went in was injected the spleen directly with 10 milligrams of phenylephrine over about 60 seconds. It worked well. The spleen shrank, the colon was freed, the horse recovered, got better, sent home, and everyone was happy. Um, it's always, always nice to read a happy story. But what particularly impressed me was, I was when, I, when I finished reading this, I thought, well, what about splenic administration in the standing horse? It's easy to find the spleen. because one thing I can always find with abdominal ultrasonography is the spleen. And if it was just a question of, of smacking sort of 10 milligrams of phenylephrine straight into that, rather than setting up an intravenous infusion and keeping a colicking horse stable during this time, and you know, if you couldn't find a sort of bald gimp to, um, to, to put the um, infusion up for you in the first place, you know, that, the, these sort of things. So I did think to myself, is that, is that a, a, a new and, and, and maybe better treatment option? In orthopedics, um, arthrodesis of the metacarpophalangeal and metatarsophalangeal joints to treat osteoarthritis in 17 horses. Hannah-Sophie Chapman um, and others, it's the New Bolton Centre, oh, and, and, and Dean, Rich, uh, Dean Richardson, um, and it's the, the New Bolton Centre results published in veterinary surgery. This was arthrodesis for advanced osteoarthritis, so cases like this with loss of the articular cartilage, rather than the, the more typical breakdown injuries, which is what uh, fetlock arthrodesis was developed for in, in, in the first in instance. 17 horses, four of them had arthritis secondary to sepsis, including one of them, um, and had its septic arthritis only six weeks prior to surgery. And the sepsis was confirmed by bone biopsy at the time of surgery. So it's interesting quite how close you could, you could push putting uh, substantial amounts of orthopedics, uh, of, of metal implants in uh, quite how close to a previous episode of sepsis. 15 of them had a, had a pool recovery at New Bolton. Two of them had the more conventional head and tail rope recovery. All the horses were discharged from the hospital. They all recovered, um, made good progress, and, and, and were discharged after some antibiotic treatment. And over the longer term, two of them have died because of colic-related issues, but no horses have died um, of orthopedic-related complications, um, as, as it were. So I think it just goes to show 
um, what an inherently stable construct the, the, the plate and tension band wire is and how well horses can do um, with this procedure. It means that it does have a good prognosis. Staying in orthopedics, this is an important uh, paper, comparison of Metzenbaum scissors and Y-shaped fasciotome for deep plantar metatarsal fasciotomy for the treatment of proximal suspensory desmopathy in horses. Sidhu um, et, et al. again from veterinary surgery. You'll all be aware, neurectomy fasciotomy, widely used as a surgical treatment for the management of hind limb proximal suspensory desmitis. And the fasciotomy part of it is conducted blind and is usually somewhat uncontrolled, I think I can say with um, some, some, some confidence. And there is evidence that it's, it's a bad thing to do. Post-operative ultrasonographic abnormalities compatible with surgical trauma have have been, been seen, these sort of splits in, this, in the suspensory ligament. We've certainly seen this, and, 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 and they've been published as well. So they just did the fasciotomy with 20 cadaver limbs, 10 with Metzenbaum scissors, 10 with the, the, the bathe fasciotome. You can get this from, from Dr. Fitz. And they confirmed that the suspensory ligament was split in 90% of horses when Metzenbaum scissors were used. So if you, if you use scissors, you're going to split the suspensory. Um, but also in most horses when the fasciotome was used. So, so even with the, fasci the, 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 the fasciotome, 60% of horses, you are going to traumatize the suspensory. Which brings us to the question, is, is, is this a bad idea, doing, doing the fasciotomy? Um, should, should we actually not be doing this and discard this? We did discard it a few years ago, and we presented this data um, at ACVS in 2014, and we did find back then that we had a higher return to exercise with fa the fasciotomy procedure, but I think it's something that does need to be um, reassessed. And, and a bit of foot lameness. Guillotine versus pull-through technique for palmar digital neurectomy, a retrospective study on 40 horses, Oosterlink et al., um, another paper from, from Ghent University in Belgium. They did very well this year, very impressed. 40 horses over 10 years, 25 of them had simple guillotine technique, just cutting out a, a, a section of the nerve, while 15 of them had the, 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 the so-called pull-through technique, where you can make two incisions and get a much longer section of nerve out. What I think is a failure of that paper was there was minimal description of the surgical technique, so you had to slightly guess what surgery they were doing. But um, what we did, they did find was there was no difference either in the, the duration of the return to previous levels of athletic exercise. So in black are ones that have had the, uh, hang on, let me get this right, black is... Black is guillotine, thank you, thank you, Richard, yeah. Black is guillotine, dotted is pull-through um, technique, and, and really pretty similar um, results, certainly not statistically significant. In, and and uh, you see how sort of, you know, we're down at, at sort of 50% uh, of horses. That's returning to previous levels of athletic activity. This is just returning to any level of ridden exercise. But surprising, as, as other papers have shown, you know, you're down to about 80% success straight off, and it does deteriorate pretty quickly, you know, at 20 months. We're down to less than about 50%. About no change with the two different techniques. And this caught my eye. Management of chronic foot lameness with 2% ammonium chloride on the Palmer digital nerves. Dow and others, and this was from the Federal University of Santa Maria in Brazil, again published in Equine Veterinary Education. 
So they had 15 horses, which had at least an 80% improvement following a palmodigital nerve block, so fairly typical foot-lameness horses. And they treated 10 of them by injection of three mils of 2% ammonium chloride solution, and they said into each palmodigital nerve, but again, they didn't really describe how they'd done it, whether it was ultrasound-guided or even surgery-guided, or if they'd just done it more like a nerve block, just injecting it around. And they had some controls that were treated by injection of saline. The horses were assessed with inertial objective lameness analysis systems um, so, so, so they could be definitive about their results. They found no adverse effects such as edema, irritation or skin lesions associated with the injection. And the horses treated with ammonium chloride showed a mean improvement in lameness above 60%, so at least 60% better from day 12 through to day 62. There was a progressive improvement up to day, up to day 12. Um, and day 62 was the longest they assessed them for. While the horses that had been treated with saline had less than 50% improvement on most days. So I, I've tried this technique in the past with laminitis and not been very impressed with the results, but I think it's definitely something um, we should perhaps consider trying with foot lameness cases. That does seem to be um, you know, the evidence of some significant improvement there. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, standing surgery. Love, love a bit of standing surgery, as we've heard today. <coughs> Similar to general, there's partial aretinoidectomy in 14 standing horses by Sarah Gray. Which you can have a bit more water, please. <coughs> Similar technique to done under general anesthesia. Mucosa was elevated via a ventral laryngotomy. The arotenoid was bluntly dissected, thank you, and then cut from the muscular process. The mucosa wasn't sutures, they just trimmed it and left it to heal by second intention. And they had 64% of horses returned to previous athletic use. They did find that a granuloma developed at the arotenoidectomy site in three of the nine horses. And they suggested that arotenoidectomy without mucosal closure might increase the risk of granuloma formation. And then serratohyodectomy in standing sedated horses, Julian Racine and others, again, in veterinary surgery. Serratohyodectomy, uh, treatment for temporohyoid osteoarthropathy. And the, the uh, paper had um, some experimental horses and then reported on the surgery in four clinical cases. There were no neurological deficits that resulted from it, no damage to the hypoglossal nerve. There was one horse that did develop severe hemorrhage, um, which did result in respiratory obstruction. The wound had to be opened, and the bleeding vessels were clamped for 48 hours. But subsequent to that, and in all the other horses, wound healing was uncomplicated. There was no signs of, of, of infection with them. The clinical cases all returned to normal exercise, Vestibular ataxia improved within days in, in all the affected horses, and the facial nerve paresis improved progressively from nine days right through to six months. So it did take quite a while, but most of them did respond um, given a significant amount of time. So I just thought these two go to show that, you know, apparently complex surgeries such as serratohyoidectomy and arotenoidectomy, they can be done in standing sedated horses. 
But my award for paper of the year um, goes to this one, and we've heard about this paper already um, today, which, which goes to show just, I think, how important it was, the anatomy of the vestibulum esophagi and surgical implications during prosthetic laryngoplasty in horses. Brandenburger et al., and as I say, another one from, from, from Belgium and Ghent University. All that it is is a, is a dissection of the rostral esophagus, and they showed that it's, this, it's, it's not a sort of simple tube, but it's, it's T-shaped, so it comes up and then opens out into this sort of, sort of wide um, T-shaped thing, which covers the arcuate crest of the arytenoid cartilages and spans right out to the wings of the thyroid. So this is the thyroid here, and we can see the diverticulum coming right out here. There's the muscular process of the arytenoid with the arcuate crest running, running up un under here. Here's the, here's the identified... Um, version of it. So just wanted to show how quite how large this, this, this vestibulum was and, and exactly as Phil said I was, I was unaware of quite um, the, the extent of, of, of this space. They also tried five different tieback techniques um, so that was 195 sutures in the end, 39 cadavers done by three different surgeons and they found that the esophageal adventitia so the wall was penetrated in 100 of 195 cases, 51% of horses more likely to be penetrated if the surgeon didn't know what the purpose of the study was that we were looking at it. And the esophageal lumen itself was actually penetrated in, in six cases that it, people had gone directly through um, the opening of the esophagus. So I wonder how much of the problems with dysphagia over the years have been associated with this uh, esophageal vestibulum as, as, as much as, as the actual degree of abduction of the arytenoid cartilage. So that was my review of 2019. Hopefully, the, the main highlight is coming up in the next few weeks. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Journal podcast. More on the subjects discussed can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash EVJ.